Good morning again, and welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Uh, as we mentioned in our announcement earlier this morning, our live streaming capabilities turn out to be helpful for more than just a pandemic. So thanks to those people who are still tuning in, even if you plan to be here this morning and you didn't feel like getting out and driving, we're glad that you can still find a way to be a part of things. So today is our fifth and final week of examining problematic proverbs. Our first week was the phrase, you only live once. Second was the Lord helps those who help themselves. Third was, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all, Tom. And last week was, follow your heart. Each of these pithy, folky sayings of cultural wisdom have bits of truth in them that Christians can agree with and Christians can embrace. But they also contain problems that Christians should think twice about and maybe even avoid. That's also true of today's example. And today's example is the phrase, don't worry about what other people think. So go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll be in a few different areas of scripture this morning, but we'll spend a pretty good amount of time in 1 Corinthians. And with some of the technical difficulties we're having for those at home, it may be especially important for you to follow along in your Bible rather than relying too much on your screen. But before we do any reading, let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for a mild winter uh, up to this point with very few issues as far as weather goes and Uh, The ability to gather here in the room and worship uh, after so many absences of the previous year. Uh, Lord, thank you that we can do that today. Uh, Even though the roads were a little bit dicey when we went to bed last night, uh, thank you that we have a good group of people here to worship you and a good group of people online as well. And I pray that our worship would be honoring to you today. Uh, I pray that what we say and what we do here at this church would be fruitful and beneficial for us as we figure out what it looks like to follow you uh, in the world in which we live. Uh, I pray that these sermons and these words will be helpful to us uh, as we see where the rubber meets the road and, and figure out how it is that we are called to follow your son Jesus as people who believe in Jesus. So again, I pray this time would be honoring to you and helpful for us. Lord, thank you for Sunday morning. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. So don't worry about what other people think. This proverb has a certain rebel without a cause appeal to it. It sounds romantically defiant. There's a certain charm to the attitude that, you know what, I'm just going to be me, and if you don't like it, tough. This may be expressed in other forms as well. Other sayings make the rounds that communicate the same basic idea. There's the tried and true, only God can judge me, which seems to be used most by those who have the least amount of faith that one day he actually will. There's also the very Instagram friendly, one of my personal mantras, dance like nobody's watching, dance like nobody's watching. And then there's the brash, 
A lion does not concern himself with the opinion of sheep. Though I would argue in the Bible that sinners like us are compared a lot more to helpless sheep than we are to strong and independent lions. But whatever form it takes, does this idea that we shouldn't worry about what other people think of us square with biblical wisdom? Well, in some ways, yes, it does. And in other ways, no, it doesn't. There's certainly truth to the idea that Christians should not live for human approval. In the Old Testament, God's law called God's people to a radically different way of life from that of the surrounding nations. In their religious practice, their civic rules, and their moral code, Israel stuck out significantly from those around them. And that was not a coincidence. It was by design. In short, God's people were called to be different, not to fit in for the sake of approval or acceptance. If anything, God's people got themselves into trouble when they cared too much about what other people thought of them and tried to be more like them. We see the warning issued in Deuteronomy 12, starting in verse 29. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you not be ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How do these people serve their gods? That I may also do the same. In 1 Samuel 8, the Israelites demanded a worldly king. And part of the reason for it is that they wanted to be like the nations. They started caring more about what people thought of them than what God had commanded of them. That's a temptation that we all wrestle with from time to time. In the New Testament, Jesus makes it clear that following him is not the path to human applause. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, Jesus warns a potential disciple that foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In Matthew 10, he tells his disciples in no uncertain terms that following him will lead to suffering. They'll be delivered to courts, flogged in synagogues, dragged before rulers, and even betrayed by their own families. They will live on the run, shunned by the world. So if you really care about what other people think of you, if you are desperate for approval, if you hunger for validation in the world's eyes, then following Jesus is not for you. The same theme runs throughout the rest of the New Testament after Jesus' death and resurrection. In Acts chapter 5, verse 29, the apostles are arrested for preaching the gospel, but they proclaim, we must obey God rather than men. In Galatians 1.10, the apostle Paul reminds his audience that he's not seeking man's approval, he's seeking God's. And if he was trying to please men, the last thing he would be is a servant of Christ. And then in Hebrews 10 and 11, 
The author recalls how his readers, who were suffering in the present, also suffered in the past and assured them that they follow in the footsteps of the faithful before them. Disciples of Jesus have a better possession than worldly comforts or human approval. So in that sense, we do not care what other people think of us, even if those other people make our lives harder out of opposition to our faith. You know, Christianity has not always been popular throughout history. In our earliest days, Christians were regarded as those who held to dangerous superstitions, the way some Romans put it. Christians were accused of crimes they didn't commit. They were rumored to be seditious, untrustworthy, and evil. A Roman by the name of Lucian once condescendingly referred to the earliest Christians as poor wretches. Poor wretches. The point is that the earliest followers of Jesus weren't winning popularity contests. If they were trying to gain public approval, it didn't always work. Likewise today, when denominations, when churches, when pastors, when individual believers try too hard to win the approval of the world, even if our intentions are good, we're just trying to be relevant, we're just trying to meet people where they are. If we try too hard to win the approval of the world, we inevitably end up compromising, weakening, and ultimately dying in our faith. As Jesus said, man cannot serve two masters. So yes, there is clearly a sense in which we do not care, as Christians, what other people think about us. We do and we say what is good, what is true, what is beautiful in God's eyes, regardless of how it looks in the world's eyes. We hold beliefs. We maintain practices about God and humanity and our world that many may find strange, annoying, offensive, or even dangerous. We hold those lines even if it makes us stick out. We hold those lines even if we're alienated. And we hold those lines even if it means we have to suffer. Because when push comes to shove, when we're forced to choose, we must obey God rather than men. We care more about what God thinks of us than what other people think of us. But how does this proverb fall short? What are the potential problems of Christians not worrying about what other people think? Well, the truth is that Christians should worry about what other people think of us, especially two main groups. First, we should worry what other believers think of us. We should care about the opinions those inside the church have of us. In 1 Corinthians 5, a man has committed an egregious public sexual sin. And this man had no sense of shame whatsoever. No sense of responsibility. No sense of remorse for his actions at all. 
And what made it even worse was that his brothers and sisters in Christ, well, they didn't care either. They either approved of what he did or simply turned a blind eye to it. So Paul commands these believers to take action against this sin in hopes of restoring the man. But Paul warns them that if they don't take a firm line, that sin may be normalized or condoned or even encouraged among others. One bad apple can ruin the whole cart. Paul goes on to acknowledge in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 13, that in a way, Christians are in no position to police the activities of those outside the church. We shouldn't be shocked or surprised when sinners sin. We shouldn't be shocked or surprised when non-Christians live like non-Christians. But within the church, we do have a responsibility to judge each other. We hold each other accountable for sin. We call each other to repentance. We urge each other on to live as the holy people God has graciously declared us to be. In a very real way, we Christians ought to care what our fellow believers think of us. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul addresses a debate about whether or not Christians could eat meat that at one time had been involved in a pagan religious ceremony. Some Christians thought that it was totally fine. Those gods were frauds anyway. And technically they were right. Meanwhile, other Christians felt that eating that food would be a sin against God and would violate their conscience. So Paul argues in verses 8 through 13 that, okay, Christian, if you think it's fine to eat that meat... Go ahead, but be aware that other believers may be watching and understand that your actions could pressure them to do something they consider to be sin. Thus, you make yourself a stumbling block to them. And in Paul's words, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. He even adds that in treating your fellow believer this way, you sin against Christ himself. All because you insist on doing what you want to do without a care in the world of what other people think or how it affects others. As a believer in Jesus, you are part of a community. You are part of a family. That family is the church. And in the church, your words, your actions, your example, and your attitude are not just about you. You can help or harm brothers and sisters in their walk with Christ by how you speak and how you live. So we should all care deeply about what our fellow believers think. Paul puts it this way. Romans 14, verse 19. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. In short, it's not all about me. Romans 15, 1 and 2. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor 
for his good to build him up. So first, we care about what our fellow believers think of us. Second, we care about what non-believers think of us. Remember what we said about the Old Testament law that God gave Israel. It was meant to set God's people apart from the surrounding nations. Well, in a way, it was also meant to make God attractive to those people. The idea was that the distinctiveness, the oddity of these Israelites was intended to invite people into this new way of life. God's people weren't called to be weird in a defiant, defensive, bunker mentality, us versus them sort of way. They were called to be weird in an appealing way. We see that in Deuteronomy chapter 4, starting in verse 6. Moses says to the Israelites, Keep them and do them, referring to God's commands. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Again, their weirdness would draw people in. Jesus picks up on the exact same idea in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 13. He says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Again, we're supposed to stick out. We're supposed to be different. Verse 14 You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We live the life that God has called us to, knowing that an unbelieving world is watching what we say and what we do. And we strive to live in a way that is so undeniably different, so undeniably better than what this fallen world has to offer, that sinners find themselves strangely drawn to it. They see our good works. They see how we live. They see how we speak. And they find themselves glorifying our Father in heaven. Again, this theme carries on throughout the New Testament. In Acts chapter 2, while the early church was a nuisance or a threat in the eyes of some, it also grew in favor with many others to the point that it was expanding daily. The early Christians' love for each other had an impact on what non-believers thought of them. And God used that 
to change those people's minds, to soften those people's hearts, and ultimately to save them. This is what's often referred to as our public witness. We Christians care what non-believers think of us in the sense that our examples of holiness, our credibility, can be a tool in God's hand to save sinners. 1 Peter 2.12 says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let your holiness do the talking, so that those around you, even if they oppose you now, are eventually proven wrong and come to glorify God. The Apostle Paul certainly cared about what non-believers thought of him. And he cared about what they thought of the whole church. In 1 Corinthians 6, he rebukes two Christians stuck in a legal dispute. And part of the reason why Paul was so frustrated that these two Christians would take each other to court in front of non-Christians was because it made the church look bad. And thus it hurt their mission. These non-Christians who were trying that case may look at these two believers bickering and determine that, you know, there's nothing really special after all. There's nothing really different after all about these people's faith. And there might not be anything really all that special or different about their God either. Paul hated that thought. To get an idea of Paul's passion, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 19. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them and its blessings. And then verse 31, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Paul cared what other people thought of him to the point that he would happily make personal sacrifices and would happily give up personal freedoms if he believed it would bring more people to faith in Jesus. People being saved mattered more to Paul than him getting to do what he wanted to do. 1 Timothy 3 outlines the qualifications for leaders in the church. And one of Paul's requirements of an elder is that he be well thought of by outsiders. 
We Christians care about what non-believers think of us. Because they're the ones to whom we've been sent with the message of the gospel. So like all the others we've covered, there's both good and bad with this problematic proverb. We Christians do not care what other people think to the point of idolizing popularity. We practice our faith no matter what the world thinks, without compromise, even if we're alienated, rejected, or persecuted for it. But we do care what those inside the church think because we are a community, a family who can help or hurt each other with our words and our deeds. And in a way, we care what those outside the church think because God has sent us to them. And we don't want our conduct to damage the attractiveness and the credibility of the gospel. At the end of the day, it's true that we live for God's approval, not man's. But when we can, we strive to be in good standing with men and women. We strive to be good neighbors, good citizens, good co-workers, good classmates, all for God's glory. Pastor and theologian John Stott once wrote that the church is called to a double identity. On the one hand, the church is called out from the world to belong to God and to worship him. But on the other hand, the church is also sent out into the world on its mission. We're both called out from and sent into. Some have put it this way, that the church is against the world for the world. We are against the world for the world. We're against the world in being honest about sin, refusing to participate in it, and warning it of God's judgment. But we're for the world and announcing the gospel to it and calling our hearers to repent Believe and be reconciled to God through faith in the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. We invite the world into this salvation that we've been given through Jesus Christ. We invite the world into this good standing we have with God, secured for us through Jesus' death and resurrection. We invite the world to discover what we already know to be true. That what truly matters in eternity is not what men or women think of you, but what God thinks of you. And our only hope of God thinking good of us comes by faith in his son, Jesus Christ. So may we live against the world, not caring what they think, for the sake of the world, that they may come to know our Savior and Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, again, this day, this opportunity to worship you. Thank you for your word that ultimately is the the centerpiece of what we do here and what we say here. Thank you for your word and what it teaches us and that it teaches us not just about who you are and what you've done for us, but it teaches us the proper response to who you are and what you've done for us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us live out that proper response in the world in which you've put us. 
that we would be faithful to you regardless of how strange or different or odd it may seem to other people, but that we would also live on mission to them, that our weirdness, our strangeness, our holiness, our sticking out as salt and light in a world of blandness and darkness, I pray that that would ultimately draw people to you, that you would use our examples, use our lives, use our words to save sinners. So, Lord, again, help us not care too much about what other people think of us. Lord, remind us that what you think of us matters most, and you think good things of us. You think of us as your children and your servants if we believe in your son, Jesus Christ. And if that's what you think of us, then that's what we really are. And for that, we worship you, we thank you, we praise you, and we rejoice. We love you, we thank you, we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.